0: Amen. Well, our scripture reading today uh, is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 8, where we read, And the frogs shall come up both upon thee and upon thy people and upon all thy servants. Let's pray. I'm just kidding, you know I wouldn't leverage scripture like that, you know me better. I'm sure there's some reference to dogs, I just didn't have time to find it. Um, It is great to be with you as we're stepping into a new year, and with that, uh, beginning with a new series of messages, uh, the title for this you may have seen, which is on the front of your worship guide, and just to be clear, that is not a typo, we didn't spell it wrong, first Sunday of the, you know, of the kind of big first Sunday of the year. It's not supposed to be the great commission, but the great omission, which is a phrase that we're borrowing from a guy named Dallas Willard. Uh, Just to let you know where we're headed for this series, Willard says, he says, discipleship, the making and maturing of disciples is the great omission, the great missing piece in the church today. So to start this, we're going to uh, turn to a rather important text for the church. It's in Matthew's Gospel. If you're and there's a Bible there in front of you. I'd encourage you to use that. Open up to the end of Matthew's Gospel. If this is your first time with us or even your first time in a church, we're so grateful you're here. Uh, Basically, what we do every Sunday is we take a, a certain passage or reading from Scripture and kind of work our way through it, talk about what it means and then how we can take it and try to live it out in our lives. And so our text today is from the first book in the New Testament, from uh, Matthew's gospel near the very end of the gospel, and it is often referred to as the Great Commission. This is after Jesus was crucified and then raised from the dead, and here's what we read in Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And we're just going to pause right there, because if you were reading this or hearing this in the first century when it was written, the first thing that jumps off the page here, Matthew says there were 11 disciples, 11, which in that day was kind of a wonky number, hardly ever, um, you hardly ever see that in a sacred text, normally you would see a number like 3 or 7 or 12 or 40 because those were deeply symbolic, They, they represented completeness or perfection or strength, but not here. It's like this odd reminder that someone is missing because there were originally how many disciples? Twelve. But someone along the way has betrayed Jesus and turned away from him. Anybody know the name of this guy? Judas. So it's almost like Matthew, the gospel writer Matthew, is rubbing it in. Like he's pointing out the weakness and the incompleteness and the frailty of this little band of followers. Here's what Daryl Bruner writes, and I think we have this. He says, The number 11 limps. It is not perfect like 12. The church that Jesus sends into the world is fallible, elevenish, ish, imperfect. Isn't that a great word? 11 ish? They're not perfect, they're flawed, they're messed up. In fact, Matthew kind of doubles down on this in the very next verse. He says, And when they saw him, when the eleven disciples saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So here's another sign of weakness. They worshipped him, but there was still some doubt. And just as an aside, it's little details like this in the text, in the Bible, that don't seem airbrushed or perfect, and you're like, what is that doing there? In a weird way, it inspires more trust in me of its authenticity. Because it's so real. It's unfiltered. Like if you were making up this story, you were trying to create something really compelling, why would you put that in there? Some doubt it. And we're going to come back to that. Verse 18, and here's what we get to uh, that is called the Great Commission. And Jesus came to them and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Before Jesus leaves this world, he gives this great mission to his followers. Go and make disciples and I know it's kind of obvious, but I think it's important that we get as clear as possible about this. Jesus does not say, go and make Christians, go and make converts. It's not what he says. In fact, that word Christian is only used once in the scriptures and not from the mouth of Jesus. The word disciple, however, is used 269 times. Now, disciple in the first century this was not a churchy word in that day it simply meant a student and not student in the sense of uh, going to class and sitting in rows and gathering information but an apprentice a follower who was devoted to becoming like their leader go and make apprentices followers of Jesus who are fully devoted to living the way he lived. Not just believing, not just getting into heaven, and not just acquiring information, but actually becoming like Jesus. Go and make disciples. And church, that's our mission. It has always been our mission and it will never change. Now, sometimes there can be seasons when we begin to lose sight we forget, we drift away from the mission and we get caught up in things like programs and buildings and budgets and uh, denominational issues and stuff like that or we get distracted by the comforts of life or by power or by success. A good friend named Peter Greer wrote a book a few years ago called Mission Drift and it's about precisely this challenge of what happens over time when in small and subtle ways the church just begins to drift from this core mission. And I wonder, I wonder as we start this new year, if so much of the disappointment and disillusionment with Christians and Christianity in our day is because of this drift. That we have taken the simple mission of Jesus to make disciples and we have allowed it to drift and shift into something altogether different. And so we have Christians or people who would use that label to describe themselves, whose message is one thing, What they say is one thing, but then what they're living out is something completely different than than the way of life that Jesus modeled. Anybody ever felt that way? Or you have a person in your family or a friend who has felt that way about the church or about Christianity? And so as a result, people are leaving the church in America and our country faster than ever before. And not to get all depressing at the very beginning of a new year, but we are seeing an exodus from the church right now. We are witnessing this in our country in a way that we have never seen before, in this country and in much of the West. There was a Gallup poll uh, released last year which showed that for the first time, less than half of Americans claim to belong to a church. And that's down from 70% of Americans claiming church affiliation at a pretty steady rate from the 1940s all the way through the 1990s. And then what you see in the following years is like the cliff drops, the bottom drops out. And yes, things like COVID certainly accelerated that, but like many things, it may have just clarified and magnified what was already really present, like a growing trend. So whether we agree about this or not, whether we think that's fair or not, accusation of, of accusations of hypocrisy, intolerance, irrelevance, judgmentalism, especially among the younger generations where people are looking at the church and they're, they're saying, if that's what it means, to follow Jesus, then I think I've got better stuff to do with my life. And so the next few weeks, we're just going gonna to talk about this. What does it look like to not just drift and to not just play church and to not get distracted, but to keep our eyes laser-focused on the unchanging mission of helping people find and follow Jesus and to live in such a way that they are reflecting everything that he showed us. how to live his life that's going to be our focus and to do that we're going to begin with what jesus begins with and it's this stunning declaration in matthew 28 his parting words and here's what he begins with he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me so before jesus makes his great commission first he makes a great claim a declaration a promise that if we allow this to sink in It changes everything about how we understand and live in this world. All authority has been given to me, he says. I mean, what an audacious claim. All authority? In heaven, we get the in heaven part, but all authority on earth? Now, there are two options here. And just to let you know, I have been deeply shaped uh, by one of my seminary professors, Daryl Johnson, Um, We really have two options in response to this claim, this audacious declaration that Jesus makes. Two options. Either it's not true. Jesus was lying or he was exaggerating or he was flat out wrong and no one should follow him. But if it is true, then everyone should follow him. All authority, all. There is no area of life Anywhere in the universe over which Jesus does not claim to have authority. Over your family, Jesus says, I have authority. Over your work and your job and your employment, Jesus says, I have authority. Over culture, over Hollywood, over the entertainment industry, he says, I've got authority. Over D.C., over Washington, D.C., hello, politics, he says, I have all authority. Over Wall Street and the economy, over medicine and science and education and law, Jesus says, I have authority over all of it. People may not realize it yet. People may dismiss it or resist it, but that does not change the reality that Jesus has final authority over it all. It is all accountable to him. Again, if it's not true, then Jesus is delusional and no one should follow him. If it's not true, run, don't walk to the nearest door. But if it is true, and I believe it is, then everyone should follow him. Why? Because not to follow him would not just be unfaithful. It would not just be disobedient. It would bump up against and collide with reality at every single moment in every every single part of life. So let's just take one of these spheres, one of those areas of life that I kind of ran through as an example. Let's start with kind of a softball, like a really kind of non-controversial one. Let's talk about politics for a moment. After what we've witnessed in Washington this week, the claim that Jesus makes is that he has all authority over governments, He has all authority over our government, over Congress, and the House of Representatives that can't seem to get along, and over the Senate and the Supreme Court. Jesus has all authority over the White House. I mean, can that really be true? He has all authority over the Constitution and the legal system. There is no hall of power over which Jesus does not say, mine. Now we're getting to the good stuff here, aren't we? And I know, I know this raises all kinds of questions around the separation of church and state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we cannot, we dare not water this down or say, well, Jesus has all authority except when it comes to politics because that's the swamp or Jesus has all authority except for the evil politicians on the other side of the aisle from me, which, you know, whichever side of the aisle that is for you. No, here's how Daryl Johnson puts it. No one may ever speak this claim on the floor of Congress, but it is so. Jesus is there in the Capitol, even if no one names his name. Some will not believe it, but that does not change the reality. Some may even resent me saying it, but that does not change the reality. Back in the 1930s, as the Nazis were gaining power in Germany, there were some Christians, some Jesus followers in Germany, who were wrestling with how do we live faithfully as disciples of Jesus, especially when those in the halls of power are acting in defiance of what we believe. I mean, if Jesus has all authority, what does that mean for our country and what does that mean for us? And out of this struggle came what we know as the theological declaration of Barman, a guy named uh, Karl Barth was instrumental in writing this. It's one of the creeds, one of the confessions of our church. And I want to share with you just a little sn- statement from this theological declaration of Barman. Again, 1930s in Nazi Germany. Here's what some followers of Jesus said. As Jesus Christ is God's assurance of the forgiveness of all our sins, so in the same way and with the same seriousness is he also God's mighty claim upon our whole life okay, that's Matthew 28, 16, right there. All authority, his mighty claim. I have all authority over all of life, no matter what you see happening in this world or in this country. And so Jesus makes this great declaration, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, he says, in light of that reality, I want you to go and make disciples. He says, I want you to go into the world and help people learn to live in light of the reality of this great claim, in light of the reality that he has all authority. He goes on, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And here he's not just referring to, you know, sprinkling them or immersing them in the water. And by the way, I don't know if you've seen this yet, but out to my left, outside these doors in what we call the Rhodus Garden, there's a brand new fountain we built it big enough to do baptisms in. So in case anybody's interested in being the first one, we're gonna have a big celebration when that happens. But Jesus says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's not just sprinkling or dunking or immersing them in water, but immersing them in the reality of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that exists at the center of the universe. This is what Jesus wants us to experience more than anything else, to draw us into the life and the love that he shares with his Father and with the Spirit. Well, how do we do that? Jesus goes on, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit And teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So, then teaching and, of course, learning are at the heart of this journey of becoming disciples immersed in the life of the Trinity. Now, this is not just teaching in the modern sense of sitting in classrooms, listening to a lecture, or a boring sermon at the beginning of the year that doesn't have enough funny stories. That's certainly a part of it, but mostly, mostly, it's the kind of teaching that takes place. Life on life in relationship. Which really brings us back to this word disciple. A student, a learner, and not in the sense of knowledge and just learning what the teacher says so that I can pass the test. Not just information. Being a disciple is not primarily about knowing what the teacher knows. It's about wanting more than anything else in the world to become like the teacher. To be with the teacher so you can learn from him how to become like him. And the way that worked in the first century, a disciple would always have a rabbi. And this relationship between disciple and rabbi, every thought was what would the rabbi say? how would he respond in this moment? What would he do if he were in my shoes? And your whole life as a disciple is wrapped up in this. It is this all-consuming passion for, for not just knowing what the rabbi knows, but becoming like the rabbi. There was even a great blessing that goes back to Jesus day. I've shared this before. It was a blessing that would be said over a new disciple who had been had committed himself to a new rabbi. And here's what they would say as he was beginning to follow his rabbi. They'd say, may you be covered by the dust of your rabbi. May you follow so closely next to your rabbi that when he walks, the dust from the road coming up off of his heels would begin to cover you. May you devote your life to being so close to him that you can learn from him how to become like him. That's the greatest thing, to be covered in the dust of the rabbi. So then let me ask you a question as we launch into 2023. If that's what it means to be a disciple, how's that going for you? How much of the rabbi's dust are you picking up these days? How committed are you to being with Jesus so that you can become like Jesus? And I'll be honest, this is kind of a scary thing for me to talk about because it. It, it kind of sheds light on what for me and for so many people is just this temptation to settle into a religious routine. Because that's what people do, right? We go to church, we attend a Bible study, we say grace. But being a disciple is not about an hour on Sunday morning or, you know, two hours if you're lucky, maybe being in a small group every other week or a Sunday school or a service project here or there. It is an all-consuming passion to become like the rabbi, like Jesus, to eat, sleep, think, pray, talk, work, love the way that he would. Because disciples would do whatever it takes to be near the rabbi. This is how far they would take it. As a guy named uh, Ray Vanderlaan writes about his time actually studying under a rabbi in modern day Israel, it's a true story. He talks about how a rabbi's disciples were so committed to being around their teacher, they would actually follow their rabbi into the restroom. Because they were afraid, like they might miss some important prayer or spiritual moment. Now, uh, that obviously sounds awkward for each of us, but they were so passionate about living every moment of life with God, and for a disciple to miss that prayer, like that was a big deal. They wanted to be with him so that they could become like him. Now, how we begin to do that, how we practice this together and what that looks like in real life, that's what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks, And, and I hope that you'll join us as we make our way through this. But this is our true north, becoming fully devoted disciples of Jesus. Now before we get to the how, Jesus leaves us with one more promise. All authority has been given to me, therefore go, in light of that, go and make disciples, immerse them in the life of the Trinity, teach them all that I've commanded, and then there's this staggering promise that he makes. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age that's the promise jesus makes and i don't want anybody to leave here today without hearing these words god does not give us a mission without giving us a promise the great commission go and make disciples really it begins and ends with a promise first promise all authority in heaven and on earth we are not called to go out and make disciples by our own authority, our own scheming, our own intelligence or planning or striving. It is God's authority, his power, his wisdom, his strength, not yours. And, and I wonder if that's why, Mark, why Matthew doesn't gloss over the weakness of, of the disciples. Like, doesn't matter what their rap sheet is. And the fact that they crumbled like a house of cards when their best friend, when their rabbi needed them most... When he was arrested, beaten, and killed, even after three years of following their rabbi, Jesus builds his mission on the backs of men who betrayed, denied, and doubted. And by the way, maybe the word for you today is that God doesn't wait till we're done with doubt to send us out. Matthew says there was still doubt, even after seeing Jesus hung on a cross and then buried in a tomb and now raised from the dead, hello, like the mother of all miracles, and they're witnessing it right here, and Matthew tells us they worshiped him, but some doubted. It's a fascinating moment. God doesn't wait until we're done with doubt to send us out. It's kind of as if we'll never fully understand who Jesus is until we go. Until we risk, until we forsake comfort to join him in the mission. Jesus does not get rid of our doubts so that he can send us out on a mission. He sends us out on a mission so that he can heal our doubts. And you see this over and over. This is the story of this book. Abraham thinks he's too old. Timothy thinks he's too young. Esther thinks she's the wrong gender. Moses thinks he has the wrong gifts. Gideon thinks he's from the wrong tribe. Elijah thinks he has the wrong enemy. Jonah thinks he's being sent to the wrong city. Paul thinks he has the wrong background. And God keeps saying, go. It's not about you. It's not about the gifts that you bring or the credentials that you have or how much you can obey me. Just trust me. Leave what's comfortable. Lean into what scares you and follow me because in the end it's not about you. It's not about what you bring to the table. It is my authority and now I'm giving it to you. And then this final promise, Jesus parting words to his friends and we'll close with this. He says, surely I am with you always. I am with you not just when you're strong, not just when you're loyal and committed to the mission always, when your knees are shaking and your heart is pounding, when you're afraid and timid and scared of what people might think, when you're not sure what to do, when you don't have the right words to say, when you don't have enough faith, I am with you always. And how do we know this to be true? Here's what history tells us. This little band of 11-ish nobodies. They so believed in the promise that starting out one life at a time, and then one neighborhood, and one town, and one city, and then they went to new nations, and they served in ways the world has never seen before. They gave away all they had. They were persecuted, chased down, imprisoned. Some of them were killed, fed to lions for their faith because they so believed in the promises of the one who sent them. I'm reading a fascinating book right now called The Triumph of Christianity by the late writer Rodney Stark. And it's about the impossible rise of the church. Like, how did this happen? There's one Christian historian, a guy named Clement, who wrote in the very end of the first century, the year 95, and I think I've shared this with you before. Here's what this historian wrote. We know of many among ourselves, this is a Jesus follower, we know of many among ourselves who have delivered themselves into slavery in order to ransom others. Just think about what that means. Imagine being a slave. You have never known a day of freedom in your life, but then one day your master releases you, he says you're free to go, he takes off your chains, and then you find out that it was someone in your church And they didn't have any money either, but they were so filled with love that they went to your master and they said, here, take my life for his. Do you see the transformation from fear, denial, doubt, to a self-forsaking, life-surrendering, joy-filled, long-suffering kind of love because Jesus said go, and he promised there is no place that you can go that I'm not already right there with you. So that's the invitation. And it begins and ends with a promise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for calling us and inviting us and believing in us enough to want to send us out so that more people people of every culture and group and nation can come to know the joy and the hope that we have found in you, Jesus. And we pray that on the doorstep of 2023, there are so many stories in this room, so many different places where we're learning what it means to to live beyond ourselves in relationship with you, God. God. And I pray that for all of us, you would show us how we might take a step towards you, towards Jesus. And as we do that, just to realize that you are pursuing and running after us at every moment, even as we continue now in worship.